Hello and welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. We have a fantastic episode for you. Leslie Durham of George Mason University joins me to talk about her current role in the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict. And we talk about her life as a military spouse and how all that moving around impacted she and her family. We also talk about the impact of her Mexican heritage. All of this plus what are her favorite soft skills and advice she would give her younger self. I dare you to not be motivated to seize the day after listening to Leslie. Enjoy this episode. So welcome, Leslie, to Relatable. We've been talking about this for a while to have you on. Thank you so much for joining. I'm excited for this conversation. I think we're going to cover a lot of great stuff, and I think our listeners are going to learn a lot about a lot of different things, given your story. So I'm super excited about that, and I will say before we get into this, I just want to say thank you because you have been a great supporter and friend of TFA and have uh, given me opportunities to come and meet and speak with some of the students at George Mason and also just in all of our conversations. And you're always so enthusiastic about what we're doing. So I want to say thank you for that. And you being on this podcast is another example of your support. So I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is really exciting. I love being able to talk to you. I know it's so fun. Uh, So I think where I'd like to begin is with your current role. You're at George Mason. I think what's extraordinary about your life in terms of our own, you know, the conversations that we've had is just, you've, you've had a lot. I feel like you've had a lot of different lives within your one life. (laughs) And And uh, sometimes it feels like it too. (laughs) So so I think it's going to be really great to hear about that and hear how you've navigated. And and I know you know from our discussions that I'm fascinated by that. And I think people can benefit from hearing that life isn't just a straight line or what you anticipate or think it will be. I think your current job is really cool. So maybe just talk a little bit about your current role and how you became part of the Mason community, because I think that was intentional on your part and and some of the things that you thought about as you went into that position. Sure. Firstly, I'll preface everything with, I absolutely love my job. I work for the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution at George Mason, which is another layer of just loveliness that I'm working in higher education. It's interesting. At the end of the day, I I work with students. It's student engagement. It's advising. I'm a certified success coach. I help them get through the, the trials and tribulations and journey of academia and hopefully get them to the other side. But it really, it's It's about making relationships with the students at George Mason and in particular with the Carter School. And it's just, it's so, it's, it's so much fun and a joy because the students we work with really want to make a difference in the world. And I mean, what greater passion than seeing it in other people and to invigorate you day to day to go, you know, some people, they really want to make a difference wherever they see themselves doing it. And it just, it gets me excited to do it every day with them. That's fantastic. And so how did you, because I think working in higher ed is competitive. It's not easy to, to find those slots. So tell me just a little bit about how you found your way there. (laughs) It's not a real like a mystery with this one. I will say I'm a military spouse and 
you know, moving around a lot, you kind of have to reinvent yourself quite a bit. Yeah. So I've had to do that and we'll get probably more into that later on in this conversation. Yeah. But when we moved to the Northern Virginia area six years ago, I was having to reinvent myself and I was looking at all the things that I had to offer to the community. And I found George Mason and I said, you know, this, I haven't done this before. So let's just see if, you know, let me apply and let's see if it, if they want me. And that's kind of how that worked. It wasn't, I hadn't thought about it for years. It was kind of like, here I am again, moving to another area. I need to reinvent myself and I love helping people. And I, and this is another way and kind of the progression of what I've done throughout the last 20 some odd years. So that's kind of how I found myself there. And luckily I found myself in the Carter School, which was SCAR, the School for Conflict Resolution at the time. We just rebranded a year ago. So I found myself there and it was kind of like, it was meant to be. It was meant kismet. to be. <laughs> yeah. So it was as simple as you saw the role, you posted for the role, you interviewed, and then after a series of interviews, you you were selected. So you didn't necessarily there was no formal connection there. There was no, I think that's good news for people that think you always have to have a connection or you always have to have a relationship with someone to get the job that you want. So it seems like that was more of a traditional process of you just seeing it, wanting it and going after it. Right. And I actually, after I, cause I reflect on this because it is hard to get into higher education. I kind of think, wow, I was kind of lucky. <laughs> A little bit of ignorance was probably a naivety at the time probably suited me because I felt I can do this. This is what I was meant to do. So I went in with that kind of that attitude of confidence that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm not sure, but I know I'm supposed to be doing this. And I got the job. And then later on down the line, I figured out how hard it was to do it. So it was kind of probably a blessing that I didn't know how competitive it was. I think that's true. I listened to the Smartless podcast. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, and Will Arnett. It's very Yes, I have heard of it. Really funny. But Jason Bateman always talks about sexy indifference. And he talks about it in association with the audition process. And I think it's the same thing with interviews. It's the same thing with dating relationships. Like this idea that like, if you really want it, and you're like kind of holding on too tight, sometimes the people read that or there's something about the energy. But if you're more yourself, you're more authentic, you're more in the moment, there's something about that that reads and then it usually happens. Yeah, later on after, it was a couple of years afterwards, I was speaking with my boss and and it kind of came out, probably wasn't supposed to come out, but it came out that I was up against about 45 or 50 other people. I had no idea, I had no clue. So I was like, oh, I guess it was competitive. (laughs) But if I had known that before, it probably would have impacted the way I presented myself because it would have, I would have been trying, like you said, trying too hard where I just went in with, this is who I am. This is what I have to offer. And I hope it's a good fit. Right. No, I think that's really cool. Let's talk a little bit about your education because at the top of this, you were talking about a degree you're pursuing right now. And so I'd love to talk about that a bit and also some of the other things, right? Because you have some different degrees. So I'm curious, like at certain points, what what your interests were and how that's evolved over time. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's really interesting when I look at the trajectory of my education. When I first, like a a lot of us, we start off in college kind of not knowing what in the world we want to do. And we are influenced by our the culture that we have been brought up in, our family and everything. So I started off as a chemistry major because I believed that that's what you had to do. You had to do STEM. You had to do something that was that was going to make all the money. I come from a Hispanic background, and there's a lot of cultural influence that happens within that space. But I got into it, and I liked it, but I just wasn't good at it. And it really affected me. So I started taking anthropology classes. And that's when I realized the human condition and the history of the human condition and the cultures that surround that are what are really interesting to me. And I eventually went on a dig to Israel and pursued archaeology within anthropology. Side note, where I met my husband 26 years ago. But since from there, it kind of laid this groundwork of this is what I want I I need to do something with people. And I then had to have the very hard conversations with my family about how I was not going to be a chemist any longer and how I was going to pursue anthropology. So that's what I did. And then, like I mentioned before, in the military, you have to kind of reinvent yourself. So we had moved to Germany after we had graduated. And I was sitting there one day thinking, what can I do? I, you know, I can't really... I was working, now I'm not working, all of the, you know, all of those things that you kind of go through as a person that has to move around a lot. And I came across a master's program on human relations and I was super intrigued. So I ended up getting a master's in human human relations and realized that's kind of it's kind of my thing. I I really like figuring out the human condition. In fact, my byline was I was getting a master's on how to relate to people well, and I still kind of use it to this yeah. day, but it yeah. really, and then my focus was in counseling at the time within that mm-hmm. degree. So it landed me in different positions throughout the last, you know, tw- you know, 20 years or so, you know, working with people in a variety of different areas. And now I decided 18 years later, to go back to pursue another master's in organizational development and knowledge management. And, and I find myself in this program right now, it's almost a convergence of all the things that I've been doing throughout my life, my undergraduate, my other master's, my work, all of it kind of coming together in this one program. So it's really neat. But when people ask me about, you know, how I ended up here, I think, Well, it's not surprising, actually, because if you really look at my history, it all has to deal with people, all interpersonal dynamics at one level or another. So it's just kind of reinventing it within the same space. And you must love, is it it called an edifile? People that continually like collect degrees? (laughs) I don't know what the right term is, is, but do you love the process of learning? Is that something that is very comfortable to you and and enjoyable to you and you find fulfillment in that? I wouldn't say it's comfortable. I love learning. Mm. It's one of actually when you take strength finders and you take all of these personality tests, it's one of the things that's at the that always rises to the top. I want to know all of it. If I could always say if I could download, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica, I just dated myself, I know. But if I can (laughs) download that, I would absolutely be thrilled. I love learning. I like the process of learning, but not because I find it necessarily always joyful. 
but because I like to push myself, I like to feel uncomfortable enough to be able to grow. So mm. growth happens in discomfort. So right now I'm a little bit uncomfortable, not in this, but in school, because it's been so long that mm. I'm like, wow, I, I'm back on the flip side of things. How is that going to work? But it, when I leave class, so I like the process, but it, <laughs> I wouldn't call it joyful all the time. <laughs> right, right. And then do you go from, so are you in classes with students that are in their 20s? Or are you, because it's a master's program, like who are your peers in the classes that you're in now? Actually, it's surprisingly, there are, there's a couple of students that are in their 20s, but it's an executive master's program. Okay. So there are most of the people in the class, I would say, are in their mid 30s to mid 40s. With, with with a lot of experience and they're trying to either oh, cool. do mid mid career shifts or they're trying to enhance what they're already doing. Right, that's really cool. So you just mentioned a lot of things in your discussion in your answer to that question around moving to Germany, the dig, which I would love to talk about that just a little bit because I've never talked to anybody that's done that, and I think it would be really cool to understand what that is like and what you do. And so for people that are interested in anthropology or pursuing that, I think that would be really cool. And then, so maybe we start there. And then I would love to talk more about just the military lifestyle and what that has brought to your life. And then certainly like the cultural background and, and you know, you talked about that a bit, like where you came from and just how that's influenced you. So it's a lot of questions, but let's start maybe uh, just with the dig and tell me about that. Like what goes into that? What do you do while you're there? Like sort of peel back the curtain on what that's like. You see it in movies and you're like, oh, it looks so cool. To me, it looks like painstaking. Like I'm, I have attention deficit <laughs> issues. So I don't think it would be, I think it's probably a lot more uh, specific and delicate and time consuming. That's my sense. Right. That's such a good question. Not only peeling back the curtain, but you're making me go back many, many years. So I have to really dust off the memory too. Well, you know, archaeology for me is one of the most fascinating fields. It really is because you're just, you're delving into civilization, right? And yeah. how people lived and how it impacted their lives, their daily lives, how it impacted the environment and culture and all of it, right? Now, I started off in, in Israel, and we were there for a couple of months in a place called uh, Tel Dor. It's right on the coast, and it was a 2,000-year occupational site, and we were in a Roman layer of occupational layer, and we were just digging, and it was a day-to-day. -day. You got up at 3.30 in the morning, and you would be on the dig site by 4-something-ish, you would dig for hours and hours and hours until about noon because it gets just too hot. And then you would, but while you were there, it's labor intensive. And that's what I think that, I don't know if you were alluding to that, but it's labor intensive. You're sometimes digging. It's not always like you see in National Geographic, how they're always yeah. at the very tail end of something. And they're sitting there with their little yes. sticks in their, in their brushes and they're, oh, oh, to get to that. <laughs> You needed to dig things out. So you needed to sift things, which I'll be frank and everybody knows that I don't like to sift because what you do is you get, imagine a big colander, right? And you're just going back 
and forth with your entire body. Talk about an arm workout, right. going back and forth and back and forth, and you're sifting dirt to see if there's anything in it, and you keep doing it. So it's really labor intensive, which I'm not opposed to labor. I love digging in the dirt. I love gardening. I love all of that, but it's it's hard. But yeah, I was actually, when we went to Israel, um, we had such a great time. We found a lot of different things and we learned quite a bit. And I am from California. I went to school at San Diego State for my undergraduate. And we ended up, my husband and I working in the San Diego Presidio, which at the time was one of the first Spanish settlements in California. And he was the director and I was the um, assistant field director. And I actually, he would be out in the dirt doing all of the labor stuff (laughs) and I'd be in the lab analyzing. I'm like, oh, this is, again, it kind of, I was, I'm more cerebral, right? I wanted to be able to, what is this? Let's log it. Let's do this. You go out and dig it up, dear. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a great yeah it's a great team it's a yeah. great team. to this day it kind of is a little bit like that right. <laughs> yeah archaeology is it's it's a lot of just learning about our past and it's labor intensive but it's super fascinating it isn't always indiana jones because i think and it's funny when i was a an undergrad one of the the dean of the department actually said when indiana new indiana jones movies came out are there are numbers went up like mm-hmm. enrollment numbers went up because everybody wanted to be, you know, Harrison Ford. And right. it's definitely not that. What's the coolest thing you found? Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information. Like through, well, through. I could be really cheesy and say my husband. <laughs> of but, course, you're, that's lovely. It's, that, it's, that. <laughs> it's recorded for prosperity. I would say for me, I didn't, I, I mean, it wasn't a thing I found. I found a section of the site. It was a Roman street. So when we were digging, I found the corner in the actual building, repurposed building from a Roman street. So that's where I spent most of my time was in this Roman street. So cool. that was really cool. That is I wanted cool. to go in and find an oil lamp. Didn't find the oil lamp, but I found a street <laughs> instead. Tell me just a little bit about, I know we're going to jumping around, but like I mentioned in terms of so many different facets of your life to date. I want to make sure we try to get as much of it in as we can. So tell, tell me just about the military experience and, you know, being a military spouse. And, and I think the idea for me, like when I think about it, just having to move all the time and restart all the time. And I also think about like leaving, I get super attached to like with my kids, I'm so attached to their teachers. Like when they were in elementary school that like, I'm crying on the last day because I'm so attached to the teacher, you know, I get like, so I just think of all of that starting and leaving and starting and leaving. And like, tell me just about that and raising kids and just, you know, that we probably could spend a whole podcast on that, but I am just curious some of the high points for you or what, you know, what are some of the things that have been for for that experience for you? My husband's getting ready to, well, he's actually on terminal leave. He retires officially December one. And so 21 years of doing the military thing. And it's a mixed bag. I would say there were more blessings than there were not. 
mm-hmm. um, clearly, you know, deployments being is kind of being alone a lot with the kids was difficult, but I think it's made us a very close family. We lied on each other and we still do. We are each other's best friends to include my two children, yeah. you know, as you know, Jackie and Preston. And so I think in many ways, it made us a really strong family. It is hard because I am much like you. I love people. I love my friends. I love, I get really invested emotionally. And that's probably the hardest part about moving around so much because you do, you, you get attached to your new environment. Your, I was never really attached to houses or things, but definitely places and the people there and the culture. I, that uh, that's been the hardest part for for us and i would probably say for the kids as well when we moved here we moved to this area and west decided to specifically chose this area so we wouldn't have to move them through high school we wanted some stability for them in high school and we were thankfully able to do that but up until then it was hard you know being able to I, i'll never forget you know my daughter jackie you know, when her best friend, we were living in Valencia, Spain for several years and her best friend had, they were leaving before we were, and they were crying and holding each other for dear life. They couldn't stop crying and you almost had to peel them apart. And it was, it broke your heart to see these two little girls, you know, they were like 11 at the time and just having to peel them apart because they knew they weren't going to be together anymore. And that happened a couple of times, those type of strong bonds. So that was, that was harder for me almost to see that with the kids than for me. But thankfully with it, we didn't have all this technology to keep us close. So with, you know, Facebook and WhatsApp and all of the different things we're able to, I'm able to still be, you know, in people's lives. So it's been, that's been good. What about um, from a someone who has is career oriented and you you certainly seem to like when you've gone to each of these places and you've trying to find your place, how does it feel to be the one that always has to shift and adjust and customize, right? Like that that for the last 21 years, that had to come first, right? And and that I say because I know it's it's his career and it's, I could say him, but I think of it more as like, you know, that is a, I'm assuming a joint decision, right? That that's where you're, you're kind of made that decision together. I'm just curious about the like unintended or is there times when, when it was hard or you're resentful and, and wishing like, could, could I be first or could what I want take precedence, especially as women, right? I think we're just, you know, just to talk a little bit in that lane for a minute, I think there's we're commonly like deferential or kind of go in the back seat. And so I'm curious for you how that's played out. That's such a good question. I've, I've thought about that and I've spoken about it quite a bit with my girlfriends actually that ask this question. Cause it's for people that, you know, for us women that like to work and we like to have our careers and we like to do our thing. It's hard to have continuity within a career when you're moving around all the time. And it was really hard. I wasn't able to have continuity at all. In the very beginning, I always use this story. I was very resentful in the very beginning, even though it was a joint decision. When he decided to go into ROTC, he said, you know, I'm not going to do this unless you are on board with this. And all I said was, yeah, adventure, man, let's go. Let's, let's do this. You don't really 
I was, I, I've always liked working. I always liked to have my own identity as a, as a woman and as a person. So I've always, I've been able to do that thankfully, but it hasn't been easy. But when we first started off, I was working as a recruiter for the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in, in California. And they had just given me this great promotion to, you know, take on the South America, like, you know, sector and all this stuff. And then I, then like a few months later, I thought I was going to be living in the States still, still, and um, come to find out we're moving to Germany. It was great, but I had to quit. I couldn't have that job. And I remember sitting in, in Germany, in rainy Germany at the time, because we moved in the middle of, you know, we moved on Halloween going, man, <laughs> I could have been doing this. I should have been doing that. <laughs> I was this. And I had a pity party a little bit. And that's probably, if I think about it, it's probably what catapulted me to just say, you know what, I can't do this. So I'm going to go and, and educate myself more. Mm. So when I can. So that's how I've always been able to flip it. But it, I can't be too resentful because he, when we made the decision, we, and I say that strongly, when we made the decision that he was going to pursue the military, we knew that his career was always going to take the, the front seat because it has to. He, there's no choice in that. Do you have, for me, was it a little resentful at times? Sure. I mean, when I moved to Spain, within a week, I was offered a job because I'm bilingual and with my background working in one of the, the kids' school. I was like, oh, I'm so excited. And my husband looked at me and said, you can't. It's the SOFA agreements won't allow you to work here. And I went, oh, wow. are you kidding me? So it was, yeah. so what do I do in Spain? I end up volunteering and taking on all of these, you know, roles with the families and I do other things, right? And I go and get educated. I take classes and I do things that way. But yeah, it it's, it gets, uh, it's a kick in the gut sometimes, but now he tells me, well, I had the first 20, you have the second 20, so go for it. <laughs> it's interesting when you talk about that, like that's a lot of, I would consider resilience and perseverance to pivot and figure out a different outcome. And I'm curious where that comes from, or if that's something you've cultivated over time. I think that's not inherent always in people. So you know, I, I'm a big believer, like, are you, are you a victim to your circumstance or do you learn from it and, and move on? Right. Like I've, I'm a big believer in that. I'm just curious for you. Have you always been like that? Were you born like that? Or is that something that you developed over time? That's a really good question. I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I, I would think a little part of it I was born with, although I had a, a great upbringing, I've been working since I was 13 years old. So I, we had family businesses and I, and there's a lot of, you know, my mom worked a lot and I didn't, I, I was very independent and was relied upon from a very early age. So I probably, if I was to go back, that's mm -hmm. probably where some of these things come from, mm -hmm. but I think it is cultivated over time to learn how to reframe your circumstance, right? not be a victim of the circumstance, but make the most of it, whatever it may be. So because going back to, I love learning and I like to be independent and not be a Mrs. I want to be Leslie. Mm -hmm. I've always found those spaces for me to be able to do that. So if I couldn't get paid for what I was doing, then by golly, I'm going to, you know, be in charge of something. I'm going to run, you know, the best, 
you know, bunko group alive. I don't know, whatever. Right, right. <laughs> so being able to reframe the circumstances has been something I've been doing for, I don't know, as long as I can remember, probably going back to being a teenager. What I think is so great about that is you never know what the pivoted experience will be and what that will bring you and what you can learn from it. And I think that's what sometimes all of us can get stuck and we choose not to move or we feel defeated or angry because the thing that we want so much or the thing that we were expecting didn't pan out. And yet you just don't know what's on the other side and a little bit of faith that that experience is the one you're supposed to have. And I think that's because I'm similar to you. Like I'm, I'm definitely, let, I'm going to figure out a way to make this work and to be a positive thing. And I think that it's cultivated. I think when you do it a couple of times, you, it's like that, oh, this turned out in this way that I never anticipated. So why not keep trying it? I mean, that's how resiliency is built, right? right. And yeah. Not to say that I don't have poor me moments. I mean, we yeah. all do. It's worth yeah, shooting, right? for sure. We all have them, but it's how long are you going to wallow and how long are you going to be resentful and blame the universe for everything that's happening? You know, take control of it a little bit and and do a little reframing and see what you can do. And I think it's really important. That's what I teach my ch- children. That's what I tell my students, because you don't know it's, you know, like unanswered prayers. You don't know why things are supposed to happen the way they're right. supposed to happen until later on down the line. So I learned that a long time ago and it's something I really try and and hold on to. It's not always easy, but for sure, but I do it. Tell me a little bit just around the, the cultural piece and your, your background and how that's factored into your life. And, you know, obviously in the culture right now, you know, that we're diversity is such a conversation now. And, and I don't know what, I don't even think this was something that we uh, had sort of scheduled or that we talked that we were going to talk about, but I'm curious for you, how much of an impact your culture and background has been on your life experience or on how you've been treated? Well, my mother's from Mexico city and my dad's from San Francisco. So I grew up in Northern California, but growing up with a very Mexican mother, um, (laughs) in a very non-Hispanic area at the time, when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, there you don't see nearly the influx of Hispanics like you do today, right? So at the time, it wasn't as prevalent. And growing up in the area that I did, there was culture clash, right? You were growing, she was raising us like Mexicans <laughs> in, in the United States. So there was a lot of just why can't I do that when they do that? Or why is my mom act like this when they're not like that? And so it was that sort of thing. And also when I, when I was talking about studying, you know, there's a lot of cultural influence that happens through what you're, you're supposed to do at the time, you know, it's a kind of an antiquated way of thinking, but it's, you know, you're supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be doing that. You need to be the, you know, if I, We've all heard, you know, what we needed to do as women to take care of the men, to take care of this. And it was all kind of a part of it. But at the same time, my mom worked the entire time and had her own kind of company. But she was, when she first moved to California, was very much, there was a lot of maybe racism, you could call it, towards her. You know, she was slandered quite a bit. And she told us about it. I, myself, personally, 
have never experienced it on a firsthand basis to me, but I witnessed it with my family members. So that impacts somebody, it impacts a child and it has impacted my life and to be very culturally sensitive to others and how they want to be perceived and how they want to, you know, just be validated and operate through life, especially here in the United States. And do you think that experience, I wonder if that is somewhat of a input to your interest in human relations and interpersonal connection, right? That, that you had this unique experience to you that not a lot of people have. And so I'm sure it creates curiosity and how does it all work and how do we really relate and connect? It's really interesting that you say that because when you're growing up in that environment, you don't think about it, right? Right, right. That's what it is. It's just, this is how I'm raised. And these are the, my mom can't do, you know, we, these, this is just how it, we work and that this is how we operate as an adult. And especially in the time like that we're living in where things have really been brought to the surface and people are much more aware of differences and diversity and inclusion and all of that. I start thinking and reflecting on my own life and how I've gotten here. And yeah, that absolutely plays a part. And I would say, and it's really interesting because if you see me and you can all see me, I don't look like I'm Hispanic. Like nobody thinks I'm Hispanic until I open my mouth, (laughs) but I have to, and I have almost the reverse because I'm a very proud Latina is one of my, you know, I would say it was probably one of my salient kind of identities, but I have to work to actually, I have to do the reverse. I have to convince people that I'm Hispanic. Interesting. Yeah. Where most people have the reverse. They don't want to be put into a box of being X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, that's my community. Who I am, but I have to work at it. So it's really interesting. I've, and this has been something that I've been kind of discovering just mm-hmm. recently, actually. Yeah. It, it never thought about it until, until like probably in, in the last couple of months about how I really try and identify with the community, but it takes a little bit more from me because they I'm not outwardly representing. Right. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So we've covered a lot in terms of how you've progressed in your life through school and, you know, culturally as you were younger. I'm curious if there's anything else that's happened along the way for you that's, and we've already talked about a significant amount, so we may, may have covered it already, but just in terms of when you think about what shaped you or a significant moment or something that had impact on, you mentioned the word trajectory before. I'm curious if there's anything that you think, you know, if someone listening to this is at an intersection point, right? I'm always looking for opportunities for people to feel connection. I'm curious if there's anything else that we haven't talked about to this point that you think would be worth talking about or mentioning that might be helpful. Well, when I was reviewing the questions before, I was real. I really put a little bit of thought into this because I think there's so many kind of moments in your life that get you, but you don't realize they're actually moments that are happening, right? And I keep going back to this one moment in in my life that kind of changed the way I interact and the way my confidence level skyrocketed. I if you were to if you know me today and you know me, Teresa, I I'm very extroverted. I'm like, I'm, I'm always going and, um, I love people. And I love talking, but I wasn't always like that. I was insecure 
whisper and shy, not shy, kind of, I guess you could say a little bit more on the timid side because I was afraid of judgment, mm. which happens to a lot of young people, right? That's a, 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 almost a natural. I was scared of public speaking and ironically, I a lot of public speaking and, and there's this one moment I was an undergraduate and like I said, I was working for the San Diego Presidio and I had entered into or not entered I was going to be presenting at a huge conference a California archaeological conference in LA and I'd written my abstract had the whole presentation I get to the conference and all I see are academics there I'm an undergrad so I'm thinking of my undergrads that I work with now I'm a little undergrad I have experience because I've done things and I'm working in it but I'm still who am I to be up there talking about something when I'm in a room with all these professors from all these institutions in California teaching archaeology and anthropology? And I'm going up there to give my 15 minutes of, you know, the indigenous populations and the historical aspect of, of Spain on the Presidio and the findings that we've had. And I get up there nervous, like almost catatonic. I get up there on the stage. I'm about to give the presentation and I, I start and then I, I freak out so much. I, I stopped and I remember closing my eyes and going, I need to start over like that. I literally said, I need to start over. So they're like, okay. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at and then I opened my eyes and I started, and then I focused on these two elderly gentlemen sitting in the front row that were smiling. They were so thrilled with everything that came out of my mouth, at least in my mind, that's what I was thinking. In my mind, right. they were super happy for what I was saying. They got me through that entire conference, that 15 minutes. I leave, I walk outside. I feel the weight of the world off my shoulders. And then all of a sudden I start having all these professors coming up to me going, I love what you just did. You did an amazing job. Can I use your findings in my class? All of this stuff. I just got goosebumps when you said right. that. I just found my abstract the other day too. I was like, oh, and it was that moment. Look at, I'm talking, I was, this is 20 some odd years ago. It had to be like yeah. 27 years ago. I was thinking I can do this. Like, they yeah. didn't know what I had to tell them. I was the one that knew it. I was the one that did the research. Didn't matter if they had 5 million PhDs in this. I was still the one that was doing it and they wanted to hear me. And it, from that moment on, it really opened me up. That was the pivotal moment in my life that said, I can do this. I can talk and people will listen. They might not always like what I have to say, Right. But they'll listen and maybe they won't and I don't care, but I'm going to give it a go. And that from that moment on, it really changed my outlook on how I interact with people and how I present and how I go about doing things professionally and in my own personal life. What a great story. I yeah. love that story. It's so interesting you say that you focused on the two people. When I do speaking, I often, if I can, if it's a small enough group, I'll introduce myself to a couple of attendees that come in early, or I try to create some connection 
so that when I am in front of the room and, and you're like on, so to speak, you can, because I too connect with, if I feel a connection with someone, I just relax. Like I can be myself. I'm more authentic. So the fact that you found the two people and then yes, if they're giving you that feedback and it just, it's just such yeah, a great nonverbal cues to yeah. me yeah. were huge. They were everything. Look, if I, if I could, I don't even know who they are. If I can find them and tell them, <laughs> thank you for like changing my life. Yeah. Isn't that the, it's, it's the craziest thing that something that I was no, so scared of ended up being those uncomfortable moments that I grew from. It's fantastic. And it's a great segue to this next question, because I think given my passion for youth and development and, and young adults, not just but like young adults and, and like entry-level talent, you have this great place to observe what I would characterize as like our next generation of leaders, right? Like I always think of leaders for tomorrow and you, you have, I think even those of us that are parents, you have a certain view of, of your children and depending on where they are in terms of their milestones, I think you in that, in that system and being able to see students in a different way than than we do as parents and frankly as either in high school right it's just a unique time and I think there's probably you said that you're inspired by the energy particularly in the school of of peace and conflict and res resolution yeah which is such a great name like what a great degree to have I think I would go back and get that degree tell me what you see that gives you hope right right like that that you see that we may not know um, for the future and then I think, you know, juxtaposed to, you know, I'm passionate about soft skills. So what are some of the things that you're hoping to see more of, or you're, you're seeing them needing a little bit of a development or a gap, but let's start with like hope and what you see that's going great and that we should feel like good about in terms of our future leaders. Yeah, no, I love that. Oh my gosh. I see. I see, I am so hopeful. One of the things, even on the bad days, when we all have bad days at work, I remember, I, I think of the students that, that, that I work with and that I'm able to help and really kind of mold a little bit mm -hmm. or they are so passionate on, about wanting to affect positive change. And I think this generation is really all about that. And I see it time and time and again, not just in the Carter school, but also in business and in um, engineering and environmental studies, all of it, um, English, you name it, math, it, it doesn't matter where they're sitting. I see this generation as the generation that really wants to dig in and affect positive change, however they see themselves doing it. And that is extremely hopeful because, you know, instead of just kind of maintaining the status quo or going along with you know, this is just how it's always been done. There's a little bit of, let's mix it up a little bit and see what we can do differently to make it better for next generations and even our own and from their perspective. So I see that time and time and again, how yeah. they just really, they are passionate about it and it's a joy. That's a joy to work with and see, and it, it inspires. How can it, ins right. I've been, as I said, I've been working for Mason for almost six years now and I mean, I'm going back to school. I, I didn't think I would ever do that again. And here yet I am again doing it. And why? Because I've been inspired. I've been inspired to how can I even 
you know, switch up my own career and potentially, you know, affect positive change within, you know, organizations and companies and whatnot. So it's, it's across the board, we should all be hopeful. That's fantastic. When it comes to soft skills, I talk about this quite a bit because our, the major that they're getting within the Carter school really develops soft skills. That's, it's one of the underlying factors. So even as part, part of my job is recruiting for, you know, recruitment. And I talk about one of the things that employers are really looking for are problem solvers in conflict resolution. It It's rising okay. to the top and it's continually becoming more relevant and necessary in all facets of work, right? So being able to really get in there and understand the other and do interpersonal dynamics and problem solve, a lot of the stuff you can learn on the job, right? As we know, you you have a foundational knowledge, but when you get into a workplace, you have to learn their systems, their processes. You learn a lot on the job within a company. You just have a foundational you know, expertise possibly when you get in there, which you still have to learn, but it'd be great if you already knew how to be a problem solver and connect the dots and know how to work and collaborate. So the two skills I would say from what I noticed, conflict resolution, problem solving and collaboration. And do you think, I'm curious, I mean, I have my own thoughts about this. I'm, I'm just, because you, I think are an introspective thinker and you're an observer too. What do you think drives some of that deficiency or the gap? What what do you think's behind the the need to develop those skills a bit more? You know, what do you think it is? Yeah, the problem solving and collaboration. Aware of yeah, those two particularly. Like, is it? What do you think? Maybe I don't know that. Like, if you were to ask this question twenty years ago, I'm not sure it's the same challenge. So I'm curious if we, if we know what is, feeding, you know, I think societal, I think the way, and this is just me um, talking from the heart and seeing, just being observant. I think we don't allow our kids to fail enough. Mm -hmm. I think we try and make sure that they always are successful in every single aspect of their life. So when they get to challenging moments, they don't know how to deal with it. So, and I think that's a progress and that's a general, huge generalization. Right. So have you that huge generalization, but I think it's a, a way of thinking that we don't instill enough independence within mm-hmm. our children to be able to understand how to, resiliency, right? You can't put, re- I'm resilient on a resume. You don't, <laughs> that's not something you necessarily put in. That's something, mm-hmm. but you kind of code it and couch it in another way, right? With I problem solve, I do other things because if underlying, if you're resilient, you're able to kind of step away a little bit and figure out how to come at different issues. I just think generationally we've wanted, we've made it really easy for the, for, for students and kids. So when they get to the collegiate level, they're a little lost in the sauce. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. There's two things. One, you said earlier about the discomfort being progress, right? That that through it's through discomfort that change happens. And I'm thinking too, you know, as someone who grew up having also to be very independent very early, mm-hmm. I think I resented that. And so I'm making up for it 
as a parent now because I felt too independent. I felt too left out on my own. And there was some other dysfunction there that led to that. So that's tied up in a lot of things. But I think the overcompensation, because you don't want your people to feel what you felt at the same time, those very things that made my life more difficult have made me stronger and have made me empathetic and have made, you know, so it's this interesting, I mean, it's just an interesting seesaw, I think, of what's the right balance and, and maybe the pendulum has gone a bit the other way. I agree with you. It's the balance, right? Because, um, much like you, I had to grow up very quickly and very independent and I was resentful. And to this day, if I think of certain things, I will just get all sorts of heated. My amygdala just goes crazy on me. Yeah. But then, and I do, and we don't, we don't want our kids, our children to have those same hard experiences, but at the same time, are we doing them many favors by not allowing them to have some hardship, like mm-hmm. a little struggle, right? Right. And I talk about that with students a little bit that want all of it happening. You know, it's, we're also technology plays a part in this too, right? right. The, you and I, all of us, you know, anybody over, I guess the age of 35, 40, I don't know what, what, what time and space, but anybody like in that age group doesn't, didn't have technology in the phones and the accessibility and the instant gratification that right. they have now. So that also plays a part, right? You know, if you're not able to figure out a problem without looking it up immediately here, or you're not allowed to actually connect the dots in your head and really analyze and use those critical thinking skills, which is another one, critical thinking, you're not working the muscle. I mean, it's something you got to work, right? So if you're never working it, when you actually have to use it, it's not, it's not going to work as well as it could. I think that um, your, I, I love that. And I think the the other piece that I want to just comment on is the fact that the school that you're in, that it's such a big part of your curriculum and that you're seeing the gap and then you're addressing it. Like anything we can do to help people develop these skills. So when they are in their new jobs where they have to you know, the technical component of their job, whatever that discipline is, that's a huge piece of your work and that's not to be dismissed. So it's, it's interesting. Like if we can cultivate and develop these skills now while, while they're there, or even, I think you can do it a little earlier. It just helps them, I think, build that core foundation. So then they can just run and fly and there's nothing holding them back. So I think it's great that you're doing that. And I know I've talked to someone in your B-School too, where they're doing a lot of curriculum on that. So I'm just like, kudos to Mason, I think, for recognizing the importance of, of these skills and, and really doing something about it. I think that's awesome. My little my little commercial for Mason. Uh, see, I, I, I great school, there. great university. I'm wearing, I'm wearing my Mason green today. So you see, I love it. I love it. Um, and then just to wrap us up, because I do, I do love this question. I'm curious, given who, you know, just how you think and how you come at things, what, when you think about where you are now and everything that you've experienced, and it's quite a lot, uh, what advice would you give a lesser experienced or a younger Leslie? And I think for you, it's so interesting because we could pick all these different points of development. I'm just curious. I won't lead the witness there, but I'm just curious, pick a version of, of a young Leslie and what would you say to her 
that would help make the path a little easier or help her feel more reassured? I'm going to go with, when this will make sense when I say it, I'm going to go with my gut feeling. Yeah. Because I'm going to say, go with my gut feeling. Uh-huh. Mm, I, I like think that. if I could tell my younger self to silence the noise, because we have a lot of noise in our life, silence the noise and listen to our gut and our, in our inner voice, I would have made some different choices instead of listening to the noise and trying to feed into that. Do I regret any of it? Absolutely not. Because right. all of the things that I've done, good, bad, all of it has made, has led me here talking to you today. So right. I embrace all of the, the good, all of the painful, all of the bad choices, the good choices. I don't regret any of it. But if I was to go back, I would definitely say, you know more than you think you do listen to yourself because you've got this. And when you say noise, you mean other people's opinions, what, whatever, like the norms are, what, you know, pressure, peer pressure, whatever those things are. And that's true at any age, really quiet. I had a lot of noise, like Mm -hmm. a lot of noise, familial, friend, Mm -hmm. societal, you name it. There was a lot of it. And I was really impressionable Mm -hmm. and insecure. And through that insecurity, I paid too much attention to what the noise that was in my life instead mm-hmm. of saying, I, I think if I, if I don't have that, I would have, I would have to go with this, but I wasn't, I, I would like to say I wasn't strong enough, but I, I, I think I was, I just was not secure enough in my own ability to pay attention to my, my, my own self, what my children yeah. was, your own self. <laughs> I love it. And this has been exactly, I think, I don't even want to say like you exceeded my expectations because I feel like I knew what this was going to be like. And I'm so happy because it's exactly what I was hoping for in terms of just such a great conversation. And I feel like you have such great insight and the way that you communicate is so easy to understand. And I think people can really get a lot out of this conversation. So I, I'm so thankful. It was great. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you, Teresa. Anytime. We'll have you back. Yeah. Yay. Part two. (laughs) What's she doing next? (laughs) Exactly. Thank you, Leslie. I really enjoyed our conversation. Through discomfort, change happens. I absolutely love this. I also appreciate what you talked about with regards to developing the ability to solve problems and to build out those collaboration skills. Leslie is a great example of someone who has learned to pivot throughout her life to continuously learn and grow despite there not being a clear and direct path to do so. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode. Thank you to our Relatable community for listening to our discussions. If you get a moment, please subscribe and rate Relatable. We can be found on your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and our TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected. Stay connected.